On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Performance Anxiety Podcast on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Before we get started, I'd like to thank AKG for letting me play with their wonderful Podcaster Essentials Kit, including a Lyra mic and the most comfortable set of headphones I've ever used. If you're thinking about podcasting, this is the best way to get started. It's plug and play for podcasts. And we welcome the arrival of Peter Holmstrom. In addition to playing guitar for the Dandy Warhols, he's been busy with his project Pete International Airport. He explains how that began and who else is involved, and we get some great dandies history. I mean, they've been together for over 25 years, so they've done just about everything you can think of, including writing both the longest and shortest songs you can imagine. He talks about the band's relationship with David Bowie and how that started, and how they got to play live with him. We wrap up with some great news about some new projects he's involved in, including a third Pete International Airport album. Follow him on social media. Most of them are PeteDX11. Follow the Dandies. Give us a follow at Performance ANX. Subscribe, rate, and review. It really does help. I'm still taking non-committal cups of coffee at ko-fi.com slash performance anxiety. Merch with our logo designed by the great Mark Dancy of Soundgarden's Bad Motor Finger fame is available at performanceanx.threadless.com. So fasten your seatbelts and bring your seats to an upright position. It's time for Peter Holmstrom of the Dandy Warhols and Pete International Airport on the Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network. All right. Hey, this is Peter from the Dandy Warhols, Peter International Airport, and Walls Dada. You're listening to Performance Anxiety. I'm a professional. There's always either nothing going on or everything all at once. Oh, yes. It's just, that's just the way it always is. So, yeah. <laughs> happens to be the everything all at once kind of phase. Oh, but, yeah. Luckily, not getting swamped by it or not getting freaked out by it. But, um, oh, that's good. That's good. I, that's yeah. happening. Well, thank you for, for coming on, man. This is really cool. Yeah. It's weird. I, I kind of, I, I, I think one, an interview I did uh, maybe a month or two ago, it kind of dawned on me. It's like, I'm just agreeing to every interview that's come up. <laughs> <laughs> talk to people and just like to outside like my you know the normal of like business and family and stuff yeah just because i'm so used to that like ha- like interactions with people just on the road or or whatever you yeah. know and it's just gone but that part of my life just disappeared and it's like oh weird yeah just in a, you know the blink of an eye yeah that's crazy so you guys do have a really good sense of humor in the music. There's always been the sense of humor, uh, sort of tongue in cheek, yeah. you know, 
mostly in song titles, not necessarily the actual lyrics and songs themselves, but definitely having a little bit of fun. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, it's not worth it if you're not having fun. Well. Is it? <laughs> um, I mean, yes and no. I mean, this, this is such a weird business. There are moments of just the most fun, the best feeling ever. And then there's the 90% of the rest of the time, which is either hard work or sitting around bored off your ass. So, yeah. And nobody, like, that's the part nobody talks about ever. So, you know, everybody just sees that little, like, little moment and goes, those guys are so lucky. I want to, they do. Yep. So, well, that's part of what we talk about on the show. But one thing that I do want to find out is how you got into this whole thing in the first place. I mean, were you, was there a lot of music growing up in the house when you, when you grew up and uh, what were you, what was playing? What were you listening to? Um, my parents played a lot of music. Um, not, not, I guess when I was a kid, it was like a lot of like sixties folk, you know, Peter, Paul, Mary brothers Four. Oh, I love the brothers four. Um, some, some Dylan, some Bob Marley, a lot of classical on the radio. And and my dad at one point, and this is, this is my, like my first like musical memory is like, he brought home dark side of the moon when it came out. Oh, wow. yeah, he was, he kind of, you know, he dabbled in the whole hi-fi kind of thing. So he had a decent, decent monitors, speakers and, and stereo system. And, but that as a kid, you know, a room full of clocks and all the weird noises. It's like, <laughs> that was just fun. Yeah. And so that's, that's like my first real memory of music. Nobody in my family played anything. Oh, like nowhere. Really? Uh, but, but my, but my parents, like they, they always had me and my sister going to like some sort of music lesson of some sort. Like there was, I think some Suzuki method thing when we were really, really little, where we kind of learned a little bit of keyboard stuff and that didn't stick. Then there was, then there was recorders and, and stuff later on. And my dad brought home a, an acoustic guitar at one point and like learned a few things, taught me that. So, I mean, it was always there, but not in any sort of professional way. It was just sort of like, this is an interesting thing. Oh, okay. Was it a, a the guitar that really got you interested in music or was there an album that really got you, that got its uh, cooks into you? I mean, um, so when I first, okay, so after the, I started taking some guitar lessons just from a, a local kind of teacher who, who taught us Beach Boys songs. Okay. I kind of like got into that, but there was, you know, I can't, like my first, it was probably like, I, I lived in England when I was uh, 10 years old. My family moved there. Okay. And that's kind of when... I started noticing music more like, like a style, like styles of music. I had this crazy thing where I, I loved all the kid, all the rocker kids walked around with like ACDC patches and stuff. And that was the one I latched onto. I, there was probably lots of others, but it's like ACDC. And then I liked the mod kids 
and you know the selector and madness and specials pins and then the black and white ties you know just that whole the two-tone kind of thing right so there was kind of this weird like those were the two things which you know when i was around 10 11 that 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 caught my eye and ears and those are two Uh, really opposite ends of the spectrum too Absolutely. But I mean, my, my music taste has always kind of been like that. It's not necessarily like one genre over another. It's kind of always taken from, from everything though. I do have periods where it's like only heavy metal, (laughs) only like, you know, new wave. And then it's like kind of a chunk where it was only goth. And then, and then it was like shoegaze. Uh, and then and it's just mixing it all up ever since then. So when did you start f- playing with other people and, and forming bands? And what were, what were you playing at that time? Um, so the, uh, I played, I've always, I've, I've played saxophone in like the, the school jazz band. Okay. Baritone sax. And um, so that was the first time really playing with people. But in high school, it's uh, like my senior year, I put together, or I was actually Courtney was sort of putting together a band of, of kids. It's two years younger than him. Um, <laughs> but his sing, wait, his guitar players, or a guitar player from one of his bands had a younger brother who was a singer, and they had put together a band. And they need a guitar player. And he knew that I played guitar through another friend of ours. Uh, and so I, I kind of joined that, joined that. And so I like to say we were Portland's first goth band. True um, <laughs> or not, I don't know. But we, we played all of like two or maybe four or five shows total. <laughs> <laughs> so no big effect on the, the scene or anything, but... So, have you always been playing with Courtney? Then has he always been in in your bands? No, huh? The okay. Dandies, the the one and only band I've been in with him. Oh, okay. I knew who he was because he was a drummer drummer for a bunch of really cool bands around town. Um, and um, then a, then a friend of mine who I went to high school with became his uh, bass player in another couple bands with him. <laughs> That ended, and then right when I graduated from college and when I moved back to Portland, that's when we started the Dandies. And it sort of fell into place. He had been kicked out of a band, and I, I don't know, you know, it just timing, just kind of, you know, everything fell into place. How did you guys decide on the name, the Dandy Warhols? Um, first title, the band name was uh, Andy Warhol's Little Girls. Oh, <laughs> Um, and briefly was Andy Warhol's wet dream. Um, (laughs) and, um, I was always saying like my little pat answer to anything was dandy, you know, whether it was good, bad, you know, that was always just said it's dandy and just put that together and, and it stuck. It's a little bit better than the, the, uh, answer I get a lot, which is, well, we had a gig booked. We didn't have a name, and we threw that in there as a placeholder, and that's been our name ever since. Uh, <laughs> it was, and I mean, if you analyze any band name, they're pretty. All, they're all pretty terrible. <laughs> and so it's like, but but as soon as it becomes a band name, 
you don't really think about it. It's just a band name and it's fine. So you think about it more when you're trying to figure it out and then doesn't matter yeah. afterwards. Doesn't matter. It's just a couple words or a word and it means something else all of a sudden. Yeah, because it's the music that you guys are making that's going to make the impact and not your name. Yeah. All right. I do have a question about your early shows. I, I've got a couple questions about your early shows. <laughs> but the first one is how did all the live shows with the nudity start? Um. <laughs> <laughs> Sure. <laughs> Not sure what, like, I mean, Zia's never been, like, all that modest. Okay. Uh, her shirt came off all the time. That, that just, it wasn't a big deal. Okay. Uh, but, you know, we had, there was a couple shows that we played. There was a club in Portland called Satyricon, and every Sunday they did, um, like, cabaret nights. Okay. Which always a theme, and we played a number of them, like, one of them was the Naughty Cabaret, where we all dressed up in, in like, vintage 90s and, like, lay on the, on the stage and, and kind of played everything really slow and had people making out all around us. Oh, wow. I don't know. That's, it was, that's different. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. And then there was another one that was the Pretentious Artist Cafe, or pre Pretentious <laughs> Artist Cabaret, where... We, me, and this was, God, this was, can't remember if Z was in the band yet. Oh, so this could be really early. Yeah. So it was, it was definitely like, whether no, she must've been in the band, but, um, we played behind a sheet, a plastic, a plastic sheet. Okay. Courtney front and he, he was smoking us. We were making just noise and he was like smoking a cigarette, reciting poetry while slowly undressing. <laughs> so that might have been the first nudity. I don't know. Um, okay. I was kind of funny. I have no idea like how it started, but it like for the first like three, four years, it was a, a constant. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, you know, it's like free cell phones. It's like a lot of times there weren't cameras in this, in the audience. So it just yeah. was fine. Everything was just fine. It wasn't a big deal. Um, but there was at one point, like Zia, like fully remembers that she was, she noticed she was about to take her shirt off and like looked, and there was like just a, a bunch of people with cameras ready. Oh boy! Like no, nope, not any fun anymore. Fuck that. Yep. So, yeah. Leave it to the photographers to ruin everything. Yeah. <laughs> All right, and I have a, a question about. And I'm not going to do more than just this, but I do have a question about one gig in particular. All right. Because this one just kind of stood out to me. In I was checking out the, uh, the, the web page and the gigography page on Dandy Warhol's website. And on November 28th, 1997, in Norfolk, Virginia, you played a show with a lot of other bands. And I want to know how in the hell all these bands got together because it was... Dandy Warhols, Long Pigs, KMFDM, Pig, G Love and Special Sauce, Treble Charger, Space Monkeys, and Limp Biscuit. Yep. <laughs> How did that group of bands come together? Um that was a that was a Thanksgiving radio show. Uh, and if I if if I remember correctly, 
I don't think Long Pigs and Treble Charger were on that gig. Okay. They were, we were on tour with them, but I think that was like, so maybe, 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 maybe I'm wrong. I could be completely wrong, but it was, it was one of the weirdest, weirdest shows that we've ever done. Because we went, there were, I think, I can't remember if we went on right before Limp Biscuit or right after. Oh. They were, it was super early for them and they're like, no, nobody knew who they were. Okay. I, th- I think they were on tour with K, the opening for KMFDM on that tour. Okay. Uh, and there was a bunch of tours that came together and like played this radio because G11 Special Sauce was on, on tour with somebody and yeah. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. That makes a little but more I re- sense. I remember like the audience, we were not the right fit for that audience. <laughs> I can, that's kind of the impression I got looking at the band. I'm like, yeah. what doesn't fit here? Well, you got a lot of pigs. Yeah. But KM was cool. Uh, we played, we kind of bumped into G Love all the time back then. Um, they were fine. Uh, Limp Biscuit, not so much. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, can, I can believe that. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway. So, all right, there's, so- there's a few others. There's, there's like, uh, um, like a few years later, we played another, another radio show where some, some 41 and good Charlotte opened for us. Oh, wow. And it was just like, this makes no sense. <laughs> wow. Who the hell's putting these shows together? It was the 90s. It's like we had a minor radio hit. They were having like minor radio hits. So, yeah. you know, before they had big major radio hits. Um, so it's just like, that's that's just the state of the United U.S. radio back then. It was awful. Yeah, that was, that's pretty wild. You guys did get some exposure, like you mentioned with some hits, but you had a lot of success having songs on TV. Yeah. That, yeah. and, and so that got started with Bohemian Like You on a Vodafone commercial, right? That wasn't the first one though, but that was okay. the most successful one. Ah, okay. And yeah. so, you, so you had that and, and whatever was before that, but you also end up having songs on TV, like you redid the Mythbusters theme, um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Veronica Mars, OC movies look flushed away. Did you guys get approached for that, or was that something you were sending things out no. for? We got, a, uh, well, I mean, a lot of that's done is like just industry stuff. Yeah. Back then, I think they, they all came to us. Now it's like people like you hire somebody to kind of try and sync, you know, deal with all the syncs and licensing. But I think most of that just came to us. Because that's, that's a lot of uh, shows that are that you know, have cult followings like Veronica Mars, Mythbusters. I, I mean, and I didn't even realize that, that you guys had redone the Mythbusters scene. I remember it changing somewhat a little bit, but I didn't realize it was you guys. Oh, 
Yeah, it's funny. Um, that that kind of came about because one of the guys, not one of the, the two two main guys, but the God, I forget his name. Um, um, but he was. I don't know that he was a fan of the band, but he was a he, him and Ziev were were like friends. Was it Tori? Tori, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so we like they would every time we were in San Francisco, they'd come to the shows and oh, cool. And I, yeah, so there was a there was a connection there. Yeah, we were pretty did it. Very, <laughs> I forgot that. when you when you said when you said that my that we did another um, we did another uh, like I think a Discovery Channel show theme song. Oh, cool! That, that didn't last. Oh, really? <laughs> like a one season thing, maybe, and it, it disappeared, or maybe two. I don't know. But yeah, the, on your very first release, your first uh, album, Dandy's Rule, okay, you, you guys had wrote your own theme song. Yeah. So maybe that was uh, set in motion from the beginning. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, and then and then Gus Gus Van Zant used uh, Boys Better in Goodwill Hunting too. Oh, that's right. I think that was the first major one for us. Oh man, was it boys or what? Yeah, actually, you know, there's there's one even before that, but it's like it's kind of a wasn't a porn <laughs> film, but, but it was definitely uh, borderline. It was back to you guys in the nudity. No, it, well, we weren't in it. <laughs> oh, I hope not. But, and it was a, it was a, it was a gay porn or gay soft porn. No, it wasn't soft at all. Um, <laughs> it was, it was brutal. But yeah, there's a, there's a, it was called Hustler White. Oh and wow! I, I think they used the song "Ride." like the guy it's just like a guy at an outdoor gym like you know like just taking his shirt off slow motion i don't know <laughs> all of us went and saw the movie just to see our, our music in a film and i was just like had to sit through the whole oh. thing <laughs> Wait, that, was it was your music in the very beginning and then you ended up having to sit through the whole thing the beginning and we didn't i don't know why we didn't get up and leave <laughs> i mean it was i don't know it was there was actually just sex so I saw something else on IMDb and I have, I don't know if this is you or somebody with the same name, but I saw that an executive production credit for, I don't know how, how I'm going to pronounce this so badly. Asa Nisa. It's a Swedish film or something. Walking to, I'm trying to pull oh, it up. That's, that's gotta be a different Holmstrom. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's good, because you have an executive producer credit for, on Welcome to Knoholt from 2011. Awesome. I'm going to have my like, get, <laughs> get your uh, kroners on that one or whatever. Yeah. I think they still have kroners. I think so. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. So, the other thing that really kind of fascinated me was the relationship that you guys formed with David Bowie. Yeah. How did that get started? 
in 2000 at, at Glastonbury. He was headlining that year, and we, that was our first year playing it. He brought his whole band and watched side stage while we played. Wow. We weren't told this until afterwards, thank God. Yeah. And then he invited us to go watch him side stage. Oh, um, wow. Got to meet him that day. Then a couple months later, he brought his whole band down to see us play in New York at Bower- Bowery Ballroom, I yeah. think. No. Nope. Something like that. Well, that is the name uh, of a place there. Uh, yeah, I, I think that I think that's where we played. I know we played there. And then let's see, that would have been 2000, 2000 2002. Uh, he was doing the um, the uh, just blanking. There was a uh, he curated a festival in in London, I'm forgetting what it's called. Um, but he asked us, it's, it was, you know, it's, it's just in one venue and over at the space of a month and, and all these different bands play it. Okay. And he asked us to play before he played on the last night of the festival. Oh, wow. And I think he did, he played low from start to finish. Oh, cool. The second set of hits, I think. But we also, he also... It's like said, you should come up and do a song with us. And so we did uh, Waiting for the Man. Oh, wow. Yeah. Jeez. And then a year later, he asked us to to open up for him on tour for two months in Europe. That's got to be amazing. Yeah. I went to every single show. I watched every single show and every single sound check. I would too. (laughs) Yeah. I'm... I'm, Man. Popped into my head that that was an opportunity not to be missed. Yeah. And yeah, I learned a lot. Like started really kind of taking playing a little bit more seriously. And yeah, yeah. I got to see some, see some amazing things. That's awesome, <laughs> man. I can't even imagine. I got, I was lucky enough to see Bowie twice in my life and uh, seeing him every night for two months would have been just incredible. Yeah. I had only seen him once before that. Uh, no. Technically twice. I saw Tin Machine. Um, oh, cool. Tin Machine was awesome. Yeah, that was definitely cool. And uh, yeah, I saw the Sound and Vision tour when they did, right when the right when all his his whole catalog came out on CD, I think. Right around. Yeah, yeah. I saw, I think I saw the tour after that. It was the first time I saw him was the one where uh, he was retiring all his old music and it was... Uh, he wasn't going to be playing all his old music anymore on live. And it was the last show of the U.S. tour of that uh, at uh, Giant Stadium in New Jersey. And I remember because yeah. Joe Satriani opened up and I thought that was kind of interesting. And then, <laughs> yeah, he's got, he's got some interesting tapes. Oh, yeah. And then I saw, I, next time I saw him was he was touring, I think it was for the outside tour. Okay. Either that That's- or... Uh, it was that or the the one right after that where he had this you know the similar he did the nine inch Bowie thing, yeah. It was one of those that, tours. So he so he had Reeves. Yeah. On. Yeah. Yeah, I saw him, and it may have been at the Bowery. It was a small smaller venue, and they had these mannequins wrapped up like mummies, just hanging from the rafters. It's just <laughs> so weird. It was, oh, yeah. and it, but it was so cool to see him in such a small venue. Yeah. After seeing him in an enormous stadium the first time. Yeah. So, speaking of touring, you've been touring for over 25 years. Is it hard for the entire band to agree on a set list at this point with 
you know, 10 studio albums? Uh, no, not really. Um, Zia just at some point took over writing set lists. <laughs> oh, that's easy. And, and we just sort of defer to her. I would prefer to do more new stuff or stuff that we haven't done before. But there's, there's always like, I mean, there are some arguments about like what gets played, but you can't play everything. Right. You know, I don't know. There is, a, there's a, to me, there's a little bit too much of playing the same songs over and over again. Yeah. I, I would like to dig into, you know, some more of the obscure tracks and, uh, that would be cool. Yeah. And, I don't know. We'll see. At this point, the next time we play shows, we'll have to rehearse a whole bunch anyway. Yeah. So maybe we just learn some new songs. That's a good, good chance to mix things up. Throw in some of the covers. You guys do some amazing covers. Yeah. I was looking at some of the lists, like from, uh, you know, come feel the, the Dandy Warhols and some of the, the uh, singles and all. And, and you guys are actually from what I remember, it's kind of early progenitors, acceptors uh, of doing digital singles and putting music with video games and things like that. And that included some of the, the covers, like the, the Wild Everly Brothers track you guys yeah. did. <laughs> That was what I liked about it. And I was going back and listening to a bunch of the covers today that I mean, you guys have done songs like Blondie, Ted Nugent, Gordon Lightfoot, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, ACDC. I mean, you guys do you put brass on an ACDC song. Mm. I love it. You don't do just a straight cover. You, you definitely change no, it up a lot. What's the point of doing a straight cover? Yes. I mean, that already exists. I mean, I, if, unless you're a covers band or, a, you know, a tribute band, try and make it your own. Exactly. Uh, or, or, yeah, or de definitely a, a twist on it. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Um, we just, um, we, contri we contributed a song to the, uh, to the Andy Gill um, Gang of Four record. Um, he, he, it was, it, well, it turned into a tribute record. Um, it was, he, he asked us to do it like, um, probably, I, I kind of think it was like six to eight months before he died. Um, oh, wow. So, and we, we had, yeah. And it's, I can't wait for people to hear it. It, it is super fun. Oh, what is that? When does that get released? I think, I think it's a couple months. I'm hoping um, maybe, maybe three or four, but <laughs> well, who knows at this point? Couple months. Can you, Wait. can you tell what, what you did on that one? Or uh, top secret uh, still. What we all, uh, what, what we all want. Is that what it's called? Something like that. God, no, what we need now, what we, yeah, something like that. I'm blocking right at the moment. <laughs> Sorry. I kind of snuck that one up on you. Uh, well, I don't. 
Uh, <laughs> a little bit of a just sneaking it up on me these days. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of sneaking things up on you, um, a while back, you guys did a, you started a project called Breathe Easy. Yeah. Whatever happened to that stuff? Because I would kill to hear you guys playing with Jay Maskis. Yeah, that is that was such a cool idea, and it's one of the it's one of those things where it it kind of got uh, I don't know, it just poor not not poor management, but we didn't have enough people working for us. We couldn't afford to have the people like. Yeah doing it they wasn't making money there was like there there just wasn't enough of the like the machine behind it to do something with it okay. um, but it was such a great idea and i mean those i i see the stack of like digital film you know taped or whatever it is little cassettes <laughs> um, little sitting, sitting in, yeah not are they dats I don't whatever know. No, I, Hi. Oh, okay. I don't know camera we were using, but there's like a stack of those 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 um, those cassettes, whatever they're called. <laughs> um, you know, labeled Black Angels, you know, Dinosaur Junior, uh, the the Kooks, um, Vietnam. You know, just like this, uh, just uh, the bravery. Yeah, there's a bunch of other ones. Uh, it was it was such a cool idea. It really and, and the collaborations are awesome I'm yeah like, duh it's just yeah it was just I don't it was a lot of work but it was very cool we got Swerve Driver in there too I forgot about that oh man I love Swerve Driver yeah that would be awesome you guys in Swerve Driver holy crap <laughs> we actually opened for Swerve Driver in Portland once but we had we had like a corporate paying gig like the next week or something i couldn't put our name on the bill oh no. <laughs> did you uh, did you go as a what did you do like a with sound garden with the new dragons or anything or no I'm not that one no um, <laughs> i think i think it was just see, yeah we weren't clever enough back then or, or <laughs> actually you know part of it was that um we had it was right after we lost eric first drummer and brent was very very new to the band so uh, we our attentions were focused elsewhere yeah that's understandable <laughs> you also a very well you were i don't know if you still are a big gear collector uh well you can see a little bit right yeah i could see some amazing stuff back there i yeah, collector it's not really that's not the right term i uh, I acquire 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 I think yeah <laughs> I definitely have some I don't know I'm not I'm not really I'm not really acquiring much these days no I'm I'm having a few things made for me and and that's more of, of I've kind of fine-tuned it to what I want what I want sorry sorry what I want to play live um, I have all the things that I need at the moment to to record, you know, almost God, almost every variety of everything. So, you know, I've, I've got I've got a few synths and, you know, modular setup, way too many pedals and plenty of guitar. <laughs> so. I was looking at a list of what you have, and it always kind of shocks me when I see a pedal that I have on a list that a professional musician has. So I've got a my Proco <laughs> Rat that I absolutely love. Yeah, but that's, I mean, 
that shouldn't surprise you is <laughs> because like so much of like you know if somebody doesn't have a, a you know an actual rat they might have something that's based you know some clone or yeah. variant of of a, a rat or a tube screamer or a big muff or you know a fuzz face there's like just a there's a few things that turn into a million things yeah what blows me away is that I actually didn't even get the rat. My dad bought it for me for Christmas one year, and he didn't know anything about guitars. I just told him I wanted a distortion pedal, and he came back with that. And I'm, I didn't know what it was at the time, and I just started playing with it and thought it was amazing. So Yeah. I, as far as I'm concerned, it's the distortion pedal. I, it's incredible to me. And I don't, I'm not a good guitar player at all. At, I just think it's, it's just a blast to just screw yeah. I just start twisting knobs and making all kinds of a racket that's that's my job <laughs> the sound of Danny Warhol's has changed over the years a, a lot and I kind of got this question from a friend of mine a guy his, his name's Scott and he plays in a band called The Meeting Places and yeah. he wanted to ask and I kind of wanted to ask so I figured I'd try to combine these two into one questions one, one questions that's not correct scott kind of wanted to know if the shift from the noisier pop to a cleaner sound was in response to anything in particular and to kind of add into that i was kind of curious to see if when you had nick rhodes from duran duran producing the album was his electronic background and influence in adding more of an electronic feel to the music so uh okay we'll start with nick rhodes yes nick came in on that record we had probably been working on it about eight months oh so we had already chosen the non-guitar direction um and initially he just played some keyboards on the last high It was great. And then Courtney and Brent went over to the UK and did some extra extra vocals and got Nick to play on a bunch of tracks. And um, I think he just kind of did enough that it was like, I guess we call him producer now. <laughs> because, I mean, I don't think he, in the traditional sense of a producer or the way I think of it, I don't think that he, I don't think that anybody has besides the band has really been a, a, a producer of the dandies because we could have put a record out that sounded very similar without, without Nick, right. The, all his lovely synths, which are phenomenal, make that record better for sure. But it's like song structure would have been roughly the same. Like, all, yeah, everything would have been pretty close. Okay. Yeah. And as far as, the, uh, when was the transition from noisy pop to more a cleaner sound? Um, I don't. I'm, I'm not really sure which where he's talking about the transition. Yeah. It may have been a. I don't know. I don't gradual. Know. 
Because, okay, there was definitely a decision after Earth 2 to make records with less uh, less things in every song. Okay. There's some tracks that had, like, three drum kits. Oh, wow. I mean, we got totally carried away, just, like, layering, you know, in every every way possible, like, that record. That was, like, the, ex- the, the point of excess that we then went, ah, we got to do the next thing and what was it this machine came after that that was like our our stripped down record and then since then it's kind of stayed roughly the same there's been a little bit more here and there um i mean because i used to record like seven or eight tracks of guitar doing exactly the same thing for every song oh wow or, you know, variants of it. You know, it's just, that was just the thing. There was like an acoustic guitar. There was a clean electric. There was a fuzzy guitar. There was a tremolo guitar. There was feedback that, you know, just every song kind of had all these layers. And then you kind of mixed it in and out as needed. And then since then, don't do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> the one thing that you did, you guys did do, and, and 2020 was a weird year for everybody. Yeah, but you guys came out with an album that was three and a half hours long, and then you, you also have an album that's twenty four songs and like fifteen minutes long. <laughs> right, the, <laughs> the extreme. Yeah. Um, so the the first one was just something that has been like uh, I I considered it a failed experiment trying to get the band to do something else, um, which got turned into what came out. What, what, uh, what was the original idea for that? I had, I got, I set up our stage at the studio with everybody having keyboards and things to play. So there okay. weren't guitars and we played to a drum machine. I think Brent played bass was the idea, you know, played bass guitar. Um, right. and, that was the idea that we start from there. And I think we were just jamming on like chord structures from our, from old songs just as a starting point to get, to get us to kind of, I don't know, break, I don't know, just push, push ourselves a little bit creatively. Right. Okay. Uh, I got resistance from everybody except maybe Zia. I don't know. I can't remember back then. <laughs> um, but we still have like hours of recordings from, <laughs> Because we just, I don't know, we recorded everything. That's yeah. awesome, though. So, um, yeah, that finally got you. I finally got presented to the public, I suppose, because that's been sitting around for a number of years. Oh, really? And- okay. And then the other thing was um, uh, we got new management in the middle, middle of the, um, the pandemic. And just one of their ideas um, was, why don't you put a 30-second song out every week? And it was kind of, I think it was sort of in response to, like, making content for TikTok or something. Oh, okay. But we found that trying to make a, a video 
I don't know. We, whatever. Never. I don't think we ever dealt with TikTok. It was just sort of. <laughs> now we we do a thirty second song, and it's some are some have gone as far as a minute, but they're roughly they're very short, and we do one every week, and it's it's been super fun because it's like you know all these it's there's less concern about like making it perfect. You know, it's still it's just sort of an exercise and somebody comes up with a bass line or a guitar riff or a drum pattern and something and complete it. Yeah. Just like, you know, we generally record it in, you know, a day, put it out by the end of the week with a, with a little video of found footage or shot with iPhone, whatever. First volume is up on Bandcamp. Yeah. Well, I mean, initially it's like I kind of didn't like the idea of it being up on Bandcamp for sale because it was never intended to be for sale. Yeah. But we actually got people wanting to buy it. So, um, <laughs> of course. And make we're trying to make everybody happy. I'm sure somebody's gonna like give a shit about it. But well, I think it's awesome. You, you guys did it as a name your price. Oh, release. great. So okay. there's no set price. People can pay what they want on that. So that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, because like, what do you charge for a 30 second song? <laughs> well, you got 24 <laughs> of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I think like six of them make up a song. I think. <laughs> well, that's what, that's what you can do. You get the download and you just go into uh, Audacity or Audition and just start piecing them together. Make your own song. That would be interesting. That, all right. Hey, all right. I'm going to have to do that now. I'll send it to you after I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How did the uh, idea for Peter International Airport come about? And I, you, the band is named after a song off the second album, but yeah. is there anything? How did that name come about? Um. Okay. So I was, while we were recording Come Down, I was just, um, I had a, I think I hooked all my pedals together and I was just, just to see, I mean, you know, I had, I had maybe seven or eight back then. So it wasn't that big of a okay. deal. Um, but I had, I had just gotten like the boss DD five backwards delay. And I think I got one for Courtney too, though. I kept it. Um, <laughs> and so I was running like, backward delays into forward delays through phasers and, and flangers and into analog delays with a fuzz, you know, and a, and a rat, whatever. And it was, and I was just scraped my, my pick up the strings. I was just, I don't know. I was just making noise. Yeah. What I didn't know is that the engineer, uh, Tony Lash had recorded the whole thing. And I came back into the control room and he had labeled like a stereo pair of, of tracks on the board, Pete International Airport. <laughs> and it was like, from that point on, I knew that if I ever did have another band or side project, that's what I was going to call it. I love that name. And I love the logo too. That's awesome. Thank you. So when did you decide to actually 
start working on a side project at International Airport? Uh, I'd always, there were always things like I had like, so Courtney is this, is the predominant songwriter for the dandies. And, um, there's, there's been times where I'll play something and he's like, what's that? And that turns into a dandy song. Okay. And then there's other times where I'm playing stuff that I think it's cool and he's not interested. And I just had a stockpile of those. And... So I just started once, uh, I guess so I had, a, I had the stockpile and then after we were mixed 13 tales, that was my first real experience of seeing pro tools in action. Okay. Bought a pro tools rig and that's kind of when it started happening. Of course it took many years to, to kind of figure, figure enough things out and get them into into a structure and find find people to sing on them and play drums and So when the when the first record came out, was it something that you were expecting to tour behind, or was it just? Yeah, absolutely. I was okay. expecting, and then within a year, the the band I went through four drummers and uh, <laughs> and fell apart. So I was just like, I was like, I'm never doing that again. And then you know, eight years later, I got a bunch of songs, and I'm like, what do I do with this? And that's what. That's when I did, like, when I went into the second, to do the second record, there were no plans of putting a band together and touring. Okay. I was not interested in doing that. It was just, it was just an output for these songs. And the idea of using different singers was just sort of, I don't know, it was just a way to work with people that I, you know, wanted to work with. Did did you write any of the lyrics or are you sending the music Uh, out to people? I don't write lyrics. Okay. yeah, um, I feel if I, if I wrote lyrics, then it wouldn't be even close to as interesting as what actually happened. Oh, really? <laughs> I mean, I like it. I, I mean, it's it's the same reason that I always I always have somebody else mix the record because at, at a certain point, I've done everything I can do. I'm just going to turn whatever I did. I'm just going to polish it. Whereas if I work with somebody else, they're going to put their twist on it, and it's going to become more interesting to me. Oh, that's a great outlook on it. Yeah, I just I feel like there's got to be like a little one step where somebody else kind of takes puts their stamp on it. I I have a mixed engineer that I really like working with, and we've actually started record number three. Oh, awesome! Last Sunday was the first day, I think. Saturday, Saturday, Saturday. Oh, that's awesome. So, yeah, it started. All right. I've got a question about a couple tracks on the Safer with the Wolves album. I'm a huge BRMC fan, so I was was thrilled to see Robert on the uh, album. Yeah. 
Is he playing bass on that? Because it really sounds like him, like one of his bass lines. Oh, I know. Um, yeah, I have to watch myself sometimes. <laughs> like I, 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 like early on because we we had them come on tour with us in in two thousand before their first record came out. Oh, cool! They had a huge effect on me. Really? Uh, yeah, I already had some songs that could have sort of been worked into that sort of sound um and that that they definitely like seeing them and like every night like made me go oh okay that's how you're supposed to play bass (laughs) (laughs) and um so i learned a couple of their bass lines and i seriously have to not learn anymore because without thinking about it i'll i'll play one I, and I'll have panic attacks, like, you know, go, oh, shit, you know, <laughs> like uh, one of the 30-second songs, like, there's there was one a little while ago where we recorded it and put it out, and then, like, two days later, I just, I woke up, like, oh, no, was that stop? And I had to go through my head, no, it wasn't, okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> they're so catchy, and, and, and they're so much fun to play, but... I, I don't want to accidentally like screw that up. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I kind of, I don't learn, I don't learn other people's songs kind of for that reason. That makes sense. It, it's uh, I'd rather, <laughs> I'd rather like copy somebody accidentally. <laughs> um. <laughs> You've got some really interesting people. Like I, I thought, before researching too deeply that um, dance around the broken mm-hmm. that that's ranks right up there with uh, flowers of evil. And I almost thought it was Rob seeing that one as well. That's Rob's favorite song on the record. Really? That is a great track. That and um, um, Even Happier. Yeah. The whole album is a really great blend of electronic and and psychedelic stuff. It sounds kind of like, like Vacant Lots meets Crippled Black Phoenix. I just It's a really cool combination of two genres. Like you, like, you know, going back to what we were talking about, two things that don't necessarily go together. Yeah. I, I've, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's just music. It's just sounds. That's, I mean, I'm, I'm very, very interested in sound and creating interesting sounds and lots of them. I have a very, I'm like keeping things minimal just because the way sounds are work together is, is always, I don't know. That's what I sit in this room and do. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, the electronic with the psychedelic, it just makes perfect sense to me. I mean, I've always, I mean, that's kind of like, uh, 
always thought Primal Scream, you know, we're so good at that. Yeah. And and then uh, Death in Vegas was doing that for a while, kind of a, yeah. a similar. The Mary Chain always had some kind of, they had a period where there was some definitely some electronic, you know, drum machine kind of elements. Yeah. And then, you know, I'm, I grew up in the 80s. You know, yeah. like the new wave, you know, it's like most of that stuff was a electronic yeah exactly exactly or what i was into was was pretty much electronic it was like guitar was not the main instrument by any means and yeah the new album that you're working on is it the same plan to have guest singers come in and and yeah anybody in particular that you can tell us about that you're considering <laughs> or anybody who signed on to the project already um so there's I'm, I'm Lisa from Dark Horses is singing two tracks again. Um, Daniel, who was the singer on Dance Around the Broken and Even Happier, is back on on a track. Jason Russo is singing a track. Tara, his wife, who is, was in the band, the live band, too. Um, she's doing a little singing. Um, Dion Lunadin from... Uh, he was the bass player in Place Very Strangers for a while. Oh, okay, yeah. He's recently left the band. Um, he sings a, a chorus on a song. Oh, cool. The the new one one of the new voices um, is this uh, this guy named Alexander Hackett. He lives in Montreal. Okay. Um, his band is called Pang Attack, and they're amazing. Oh, cool. Um, he's got a phenomenal voice and he's his lyrics i mean it's just it's beautiful and he's he's singing three tracks on the record and um it's kind of funny because i've never met him really yeah oh wow so everything's been virtual then yeah just like i heard a song um and kind of started obsessing on on his records i was like yeah what the hell sent off a message and he was like well, you know, at first it was just going to be one song, and then, then I was like, "What about this song? What about this one?" <laughs> and, like each time, he you know he gets back with to me with just amazing, just just amazing. And yeah. was it, was it a, a band that you were just listening to? You just found out about them and it's th and thought this is a voice I want on my record. So. I was uh, a few years back. I was obsessing on that band Soons, you know, S U U N S. However, however you want to pronounce that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, don't really care. <laughs> I, I was uh, totally obsessing on them, and they're from Montreal too. So they, uh, one of the guys goes, "Our really good friends are Pang Attack and just put out a new record. You should listen to it." And I never do that. I mean, it's like, because most of the end, but, but I did. And I was disappointed because it was not anything like Soons. But it, there was still something that I liked. So I kind of, you know, put it in my playlist and um, it kept popping up here and there. And it's like, and then, yeah, a few years later, I was like, I really like this. Yeah. That's it happens that way sometimes. And so, yeah, and I actually reached out to I think the bass player from Soons to get Alex's number or email address. Sounds like how I get some of my guests on this show. Yeah, like you. It's 
like word of mouth. And it's like every, the thing is, is it can't hurt to ask. Exactly. I mean, and you never know what that's going to turn into for them or for you. You know, you don't know. Exactly. Like, I barely ever say no to things. Well, I like, really appreciate you saying yes. Or like playing on people's records or doing remixes. I love it. It's like everything. It's all, I don't know. It's all interesting. Yeah. Well, it's what you love to do. Yeah. Exactly. And that's that's how I, I got lucky enough to uh, to have Leah and, and Pete from BRMC on the podcast. I know Leah had had that brain surgery. And yeah. I mean, BRMC is one of my favorite bands of all time to begin with. But once she had that, you know, I, I had known about that. And I started this podcast and I and I thought, you know, that's that's just a, an amazing story. So I just, she was on Twitter and I just reached out, sent her a message on Twitter because she had it where you could message her. And uh, didn't hear anything back for like two or three months, and uh, I wasn't I wasn't expecting to at all. And then one day I just see a little one in my little envelope on the side of Twitter, and I'm like, oh, who's sending me a message? And I look, and it's holy shit, it's Leah Shapiro from BRMC, <laughs> and she's like, yeah, I'd love to. That'd be great. So she came on, and and uh, we we're about to start, and she's like, oh, uh, Pete's here too. Do you uh, you care if he hops on with us? I'm like. Uh, no, that'd be great. So, so, and then that, that led to her introducing me to all kinds of people like, like, uh, like Jared in the vacant lots. So, so I agree with you. You can't, it doesn't hurt to reach out. The worst they can do is say no or just ignore you. Yeah, exactly. And that doesn't hurt. No. <laughs> oh, if, Sure, we've gotten this far in life. We can deal with rejection. Yeah, exactly. I'm not precious. Deal with the rejection. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I've, I've kept it for quite a while. I mean, where can people follow you on social media and, and uh, keep track of the progression of the new Peter International Airport album? I'm on, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram for like, uh, what? Facebook is Peter G. Holmstrom. Instagram's either Peter International Airport or PDX11. Twitter's PDX11, I think. I think so. Yeah. The Peter International Airport, those messages will get to me eventually, <laughs> uh, but it's actually kind of run by somebody else. It was started by somebody else who's a fan. Uh, it's just like, yeah, you keep hanging on to that. <laughs> Probably should get the name, but. Yeah, so you follow me on any of those. I'm I'm doing Peter National. Um, started mixing, obviously. We yeah. talked about that. It goes slow, so hopefully it'll be done this year. I mean, done and out this year. Okay. Definitely gonna put a single out. Hopefully soon, because okay. I think it's one that I think people need to hear because it makes me feel better, and hopefully it'll make everybody else feel better. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, I am also doing um, a project with my friend Chris Ollie in England um, called Walls of Dada. Oh, yes.
that's a sort of it's a stripped down sort of semi-electronic tape experiment it's really interesting i was listening to that yesterday yeah and chris is in uh his band is six by seven which if you haven't heard them you should check them out they're amazing and you should reach out to him to do one because he can talk (laughs) has amazing shit to say all the time i yeah we we like do a little facetime thing every once in a while and it's like the the first the last one was i think ran four hours wow it was yeah it's crazy i was definitely reach out to him that okay so that and then i've i've been producing a couple records jason adams who sang on my first record the only singer on my and um sang on two tracks on the last one he is doing a solo record and we just got the last mix back yesterday from steven street oh cool yeah it's it's fantastic getting to getting to have work with him and that record should be out this year. Um, that project's called sun Adams. I don't think there, I don't think there's a, a internet presence yet. Um, and then I'm uh, doing another record with a f- uh, friend that's kind of, it's kind of a country record. I mean, it is a country record. I'm trying to add my, t- my twist to it. We're on the mixing stage on that too. So, oh, cool. and that's called the, uh, afterlife revival. Oh, okay. Cool. There you go. That's that and uh, dandy stuff constantly. Yeah. So. <laughs> and look out for volume two of Fast Driving Fridays. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we get another 36 songs. <laughs> In 18 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I really do appreciate your time, and thank you so much for coming on. It's been a blast. Absolutely.
What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shot? Would they shot? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.